Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Unhallowed. I'm your host Patrick McFarlane and joined with me as always is the co-host Lizzie. Good night everybody or good morning or whatever you're listening. And we have our first very special guest joining us today on Unhallowed to talk about Clive Barker's Hellbound Heart and that is Nick Picone. Nick, how's it going bud? Uh, it's going. It's, it's, uh, it's an evening and I'm here. <laughs> awesome. Well, Nick, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience and tell you tell them just a little bit about what you're what you do? Uh, I am a podcaster. I host the Peace Fre- Peace Freaks podcast with my wife. We are a parenting and relationship podcast aimed at the oddballs, the weirdos, the punks, the geeks, and whatnot. I'm a lifelong Clive Barker fan, and coincidentally, Patrick was unaware of that and kind of. <laughs> I, I let loose one night on him about it when he, I found out he was doing a horror podcast. So I kind of bullied my way into this, I think. No, no. Well, I, I thought it was great because <laughs> you had you were like, Pat, how, how have you never read Clive Barker before? And I was like, well, we just watched Hellraiser the other week. and Which was my first time ever seeing that, too. Yeah. So I've had a lot of firsts in the, little, in the last little bit. but Can, no. can I give you one word of advice in regards to Hellraiser? Yeah. Don't watch any of the other ones. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've heard that too. <laughs> so, I mean, I, but then I, I read Hellbound Heart because, you know, what better place to start? And it was on sale on Kobo. So I bought it and read it. And as I was reading it, and we're going to get into this, I was like, holy crap, this is a quintessential gothic novel. Oh, it has everything. And yeah. I, I think that intrigues you, Nick, because have you ever thought of this story that way? I've, I've never thought of it. Is that like I've thought of it as a lot of things. I've thought of it as a philosophical treatise. I've thought of it as just a pulp wife stepping out on her husband's story gone wrong. Like there's many ways I've thought of it, never as a, a tale. I, I'm curious how you're going to put that together. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like I, I agree that there's, you know, at, at a first reading in the first few pages, I grabbed it thinking this is just a horror story. And I guess I did kind of pick up that Stephen King vibe from it a little bit. Um, Not as maybe in the prose, but sort of how we were building up to it. Yeah. And then I really went, oh my gosh, there's a damsel in distress. A damsel in distress. (laughs) There's the creepy house almost like a haunted house. There's a uncanny moment. There's grotesque. the grotesque. There's the other. It's got all of the elements of Gothic horror, but it's modern, which was also nice because the most modern Gothic horror I really think of is Shirley Jackson, which is what, like the fifties. And so when was this written? I think it's like 86. Yeah. 80s, right. So yeah. this is probably the most, gothic horror work that i've the most modern gothic horror work that i've really come across so far it was, it was funny he said it though because like now i think about it i mean I, I i see it but it was also a matter of my big take when i was trying to pitch clive to patrick was that i love him as a writer clive barker i think is just an like his command of the English language is amazing and i love looking at like his sentences and oh, yeah. the way he does write and i think like frankly Stephen King has absolutely nothing on it, like the writing ability of Clive Barker. Oh, I would, I would say yes. I I felt like his his prose, his word choice, um, oh, even the the metaphors that he comes up with were. I found myself picking up moments and rereading them and rereading little sections of it and just thinking like that's a good piece of writing like that's beautiful um there's a point where they're talking about 
oh gosh, it's like Kirsty, the character is talking about something and just the way that they're he's breaking it down and how she's feeling about it. And I'll have to pull it up. I just loved it. And I've never read anything from Clive Barker before. This is my first, my first piece. And, you know, Hellraiser was the first, you know, two weeks ago or so was the first time I'd ever seen that. A lot of similarities to the movie, but a lot of differences too. So, you know, as per usual. It's one of those things like he was the director for the movie. So he, he, that's why all the ones after it aren't all that good because it got away from the guy who actually created it. But, you know, he also kind of knew it was different and was a first time director doing it. So I'm amazed that the movie turned out as good as it did, all things considered, because directing a movie is not an easy task, especially when you're like an author. I was not expecting that to be from a first time director at all. I I really did. I, I assumed it was within one of these other like early 90s, like kind of this really gory special effects horror start movies started kind of coming popping up like a b movie like a b slasher movie yeah but it was there was more to it and then when you said it was based on a book and that you were going to read that book i was like oh it's a book called hellraiser (laughs) (laughs) well and it's it's not even like it's a book i think it was the first time i'd ever heard of a novella (laughs) when i looked this up oh yeah it's not quite a book i i I did the audiobook last night and like hour and a half or something like that it's so, i mean it's it's easy to get through yeah it's 11 chapters the majority i think the longest chapter is 12 14 pages i got the impression like that. that this was just just a little bit too long to have been put into the books of blood compendiums oh i see which yeah. is all, all um, short story work honestly like when he when he writes books like i mean he writes 600 page books sometimes because okay. while this is a horror thing, I think where he really shines honestly is in his dark fantasy, where it's him writing about odd stuff, but not, not in dark stuff, but not really not as hyper violent as I think this one has the potential to get. Mm-hmm. This definitely has a lot of violence and a lot of description in what would you say? Like a lot of description in what has been happening to the body and the person within the violence and the actions of what was happening. So do you think we should kind of, I mean, not do a whole like synopsis bit, but do you think we should sort of like introduce characters and kind of pull some, yeah, some stuff out of it that we're thinking? Well, let's Nick, how much do you know about Clyde Barker's background? I mean, a fair amount. <laughs> okay. Do you, can you give us like a little primer on him? Yeah. Uh, he's an English dude and he, He's both a filmmaker now, he's a, a painter, a poet, a playwright, an author. I mean, he when he's just one of those people like that's just lives the artist life. It's him, him and his husband have been together for a number of years. I think he lives in L.A. now. But like he's just spent his entire life making art. He's like most recently had worked on a children's book series called the Abarat books. Those are oh, awesome yeah. also. It's hard to pin him down as far as like what he is because he's just done so much. Um, he comes from like a working class, uh, you know, English town, and you know, I don't know how much more you want out of that. It's, no. Is, so is the Hellbound Heart supposed to be in England? I think all of his stuff is set in England uh, until much later. Yeah, okay. it is. I'm looking at I'm looking at Wikipedia be- right now. Actually. Oh, okay. Because I was gonna say. I maybe I skipped over or glossed over that part, but there were a few things later on where he was describing one of the gentlemen's uh, what are they called? Windbreakers, raincoat, raincoat, like rain jacket, and they call it like a garbadine or garbadine, which is (laughs) the British word for it. Um, And so I kind of pricked my ears up a bit at that. And then when they were talking about tea a couple of times, and then there were a few other things with the way that they were he was describing tools and and i I was like these are he's not an american writer (laughs) some some tells so to frame the novel a little bit let's introduce our characters we have rory and his wife julia 
And this was, when was this written? So the movie was what, 87? Seven. And the book was published when? 86. Okay, so it just instantly got kind of picked up for a movie. Okay. All right, so Rory is, I imagine him as sort of very tall, a little bit roly-poly, got a little pudge man, but cute, nice, loves his wife. His wife's probably out of his league. At least in the movie, he seemed pretty empty-headed, even though it seems like he has a good job. What's your take, Nick? I always just kind of thought of him as being like the the, the Joe Everyman. Like he's the kind of guy who go, does tries to do well in his life, maybe didn't live up to the expectations people had for him, probably drinks a little bit too much to kind of gloss over the fact that he didn't hit everyone's expectations. Most importantly, his wife. <laughs> yeah, and so Julia, Julia is... Julia, to me, is very interesting. I think out of all of the characters in this novella, she's my, not my favorite, but she's the one that piques my interest the most. So she's supposedly beautiful, absolutely gorgeous, and she knows it. And she's vain, kind of full of herself. She seems to be a manipulator to me. They, they mention, and I agree with you absolutely, because they mention a couple times that she charms everyone. There's no one that is above her charms and that she is stoic. Like, she never well, lets her emotions show, really. She's, well, she's vain in more than just the physical sense. Like, she's vain in the class sense. Like, yes. class right, is very yeah. important to her absolutely. and maintaining appearances at all costs. And that's part of, I think, the resentment that she has for Rory is that he's just not that kind of guy. So she sort of married down in more than one way. Because I felt like there's a couple things that are just really off the cuff sort of sentences about Rory's looks and his frame and his build that make me seem seem to me that he's just he's nice looking, but he's not the drop-dead gorgeous hunk that Frank is supposed to be. Well, I was going to say there's a, there's something I, I, I'd like you to think about, uh, but maybe we want to introduce all the other characters before I, I kind of turn this on you. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I thought there was some foreshadowing, though, when we're first introduced to Julia because there's so much time that's spent on how she is a charmer, and I knew from watching the movie that that was going to come up later. Okay, quick aside. She was going to have to use not good looking in the movie. No. <laughs> Apologies to the actress. British in the movie. <laughs> very British and very, I guess, I mean, you could say that she's good looking in the same way that Sigourney Weaver is. Okay. If that's your okay. type. Okay. A very masculine face. I feel like they got the class thing right with her. Like The, the yeah. actress oh, yeah. was very good at putting across airs and feeling like she was a very worldly She's just like someone, oh, I, this is the type of woman that knows about teas and fine wines. Like, she carried that with her really well. Mm. Oh, sure. Yeah. I find it funny, though, that you say, or that you were talking about why she's so interesting. And it made me think, well, isn't she the main character of the story? I guess it depends. I thought that Frank was the main character of the story. <laughs> so, okay. So, let's. Is there a main character? Okay. Though? Hold on. That's exactly hold on. Hold on. Yeah. So, okay. So, there's Rory. Okay, yeah. I'm going to put my hand down. There's Rory. There's I was sort of gesturing wildly at you all. We have the video version is available to Patreon supporters. I, I had to mention that and throw that in there. Oh, so okay. So you can you're... see our beautiful and smiling faces and you don't have to use your imagination. Perhaps your imagination is better than <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully. You're don't all readers. Bad. I'm Italian. I just have my hands tied under the table. <laughs> I know better. <laughs> We're going to get into a conversation. Our hands are going to be everywhere. Okay. Okay. So we've got Rory. We've got Julia. And then the next introduced character is Kirsty. is how I said it. It's Kirsty. Kirsty. Well, the first so, character is, is Frank. Well, but- Frank is... Okay. So Frank Cotton is the very first person that comes into the story. But I don't really think of, of it as exactly as he's... A, I don't know. He's not as much as a... Because there's not any, oh gosh, I don't even know where I'm going. It's with not this. even really telling the story as much as it is, I it's guess. Setting. setting. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That, so I'm not, yeah, there's no character development that I see there. It's more a, it's, 
we're getting the setting and where the house is. So that's um, an old house that Rory's grandmother had in England, apparently. And presumably something bad happened there. Something bad. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. And then we see that I'm just going to start with. So Rory and Julia, they're a married couple. They move in. It's a new start, fresh start. And Kirstie comes to the house and knocks on the door. So in the movie, she's the daughter. In the book, she is, I think she's like an ex-girlfriend or an ex-wife or something, but you never get a true. I get the impression she's perhaps like the cute friend who never quite got the guy. Okay, there we go. And so, not that Julia doesn't feel threatened by her, but feels like, like why am I, why am I dealing with this animal trying to get my scraps? That kind of thing. She's she's more of a a nuisance than anything else to Julia. I felt like, and I think she she comes in and she's. They describe her as being very beautiful, though. Even the wisps of hair on her face catch the light and are beautiful, is how he described her. So we're supposed to hear, so many times is it mentioned that Julia is a beauty, she is gorgeous, she's lovely, she's stunning. I mean, everything that you can throw out there we hear. But then he lays... Barker lays a couple sections in there about how beautiful Kirstie is. And there's so much more beautiful sounding. It's really deep and profound sounding. So I almost felt like she's got the whole package is what we're kind of supposed to feel. And Julia is just this really like surface level person. You know, she cares about looks. She cares about what she looks like. She cares about class. She cares about all this stuff on the surface when Kirstie is this really like deep and like beautiful inside and out kind of. Well, I feel like Kirstie though is, is she's kind of portrayed as kind of like a mopey kind of glum type. Well, cause she didn't get what? her man. Well, cause she's got person, she's dealing with things. She's got actual thoughts. Yeah. There's a person inside there. She, she does come across those a little vapid and a little. Almost simple. Em- maybe. Not real, maybe empty headed or whim, not whimsical. What do you call me? You called me this by the kitchen table. Absent-minded? Absent-minded. I said, I said, do you try to forget things on purpose or <laughs> uh, married moments? Hashtag married moments. <laughs> anyway, so then we then a little bit later, we get introduced to Frank. So Frank is Wikipedia calls him a hedonist. A couple other little things I read called him. A villain, but what would you guys call him? I mean, he's both of those things, probably as amped up as you could possibly get. I mean, his character literally exists just, I mean, like in the first scene, he's part of the setting, how badly he wants to experience pleasure. Literally, like it's just, yeah, that's his only drive is to how far can he push that envelope. He's literally spent his entire life hunting down rare artifacts that possibly offer him some next level to pleasure i like that they a couple different times or not they but but barker a couple different times talks about how he's experienced all the world has to offer what he's kind of like manfred in a way i guess yeah explain more i don't know i mean we talked about manfred in the castle of otranto where he's he he's chasing after his his ward and he's only concerned with his own progeny but he, I think he he lusted after her. And, yeah, no, in absolutely. A way. But yeah, like Frank, Frank is Frank lusts after lust. Like he yeah. wants the. Well, I mean that yeah. when he first sees Kirsty that first time. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That that right there really does it because I mean he's just it, it, the relationship between him and uh, Julia is just so incredibly weird because she has i don't know how much you want to get into <laughs> that but it's finish, you can finish characters okay let's finish yeah okay so frank is let's just say so they kind of talk about him a little bit saying that he's traveled the world he's experienced everything he's been from boston to bangkok and had anyone and everyone in between 
and nothing keeps his interest. And he he's sort of a one and done type dude and he's involved in petty theft and he he gets fortunes and loses them. And more important than all of that, he is Rory's cool brother. Yes. And he's hot. <laughs> and the guy that Julia fucked on their wedding day. Uh, <laughs> yes. Sorry. It's, it's insanity. And in the movie, I was not expecting that to happen. And it happened. And I looked at, at Pat and I was like, <gasps> but it, but it wasn't even that though. I mean, it's that he raped her, but she wanted it, but she didn't want it when it started happening. And it was so brutal. But then she wanted it. She wanted it, but she didn't want how he did it. It was it was a little. It wasn't confusing, but I think it was purposely not vague, but complicated. Okay, so she. So this is how I took it. She wanted it, but she didn't want how he did it. But she liked how she she, he ended up liking how he did it, and then found that once she had had that experience, nothing could compare, and she found herself wanting him and that again yeah. and she was in love with him and there he stumbled point. at it, the entire crux of all of clive barker's body of work is <laughs> the, the complication of desire <laughs> oh my gosh definitely just took me a few minutes of really thinking it over to be like just the section so there's just the section where he talks about that her reaction to the instance of having sex with her soon-to-be brother-in-law on the day of her wedding. It just took me so long to really just work through that. (laughs) It's such a soap opera moment in what is, like, such a well-written, like, thoughtful book. Right. It's so just, like, is is there a Kardashian in here somewhere? Yeah, (laughs) there you go. Why is this happening? So, wait, are those all our characters, right? Yeah. Okay, so well, the Cenobites, yeah, the Cenobites, but they're I can really think of them as all, yeah, so thing one character for all, yeah, they're and that was that was the thing too that it it interests me now thinking about the fact that that Barker did direct the movie because obviously he was he knew what they were going to look like, yeah, he he was involved at least in some extent to their appearance, so that makes. So originally watching the film um, and then reading the book, I I thought to myself, oh, well, I really like the way that they're portrayed in the book more. I felt like it was less. I mean, in some way, it was a lot less gimmicky. I didn't think I think you only think it's gimmicky because it's an iconic piece of horror. Well, okay. so here's the other thing that I want you to keep in mind. Once again, we're talking about a gay man in the 80s in England. And so a lot <laughs> yeah. of this has to do with bondage culture of yeah. that time just kind of being the vogue thing. Almost like a Rob Halford. Judas like, Priest. Judas Priest. Yeah, exactly. Like That's like the, the aesthetic, I think, that was kind of the what the community was. And the artist, I can't remember the artist's name specifically, but Clive Barker worked very, very hard on the visual, like what he wanted. What he wanted it to look like. To look like. And what's what's terrible is that, like, I think he did a great job in the Cenobites in this first one. Because, I mean, technically, they're, like, the idea behind the Cenobites is that they're these celestial beings kind of chasing after what they consider to be the delights of reality. And, and they're in yeah. some, the order of the gash. It's, the, they're, kind of demons from hell or something like it's very unclear in this what they are um he kind of gets into it in other works as okay. he like get out in his body work but in this like it's when they started making the movies they just the, the movies became well, let's let's make new cenobites and make interesting new cenobites and it just kind of it it, it takes away from what the whole point in the story was is you're supposed to be looking at the inside stuff yeah there's all this crazy okay. outside stuff going on but it, the real meat of what's happening is just all this inner crap that's going on with the character. So is this pinhead character, is he supposed to be the engineer? <sighs> um, in one of the movies, they make that claim. But definitely, I, I think that ultimately, no, the engineer is something different. Is pinhead a woman? No. There's no, only one woman. One. And she's the one with, oh gosh. What with, else? Uh, that's when, they, when he describes her at the end, that's... Uh, 
at something. <laughs> right. <laughs> if so, you're if you're going for a, for a, a PG audience, we, we probably shouldn't even talk about so it. So the, there's the very beginning. Um, if we were going for a PG audience, I I don't think we would have talked about <laughs> hell Hellbound Heart. So so there's a. <laughs> There's the explanation explanation at the very end and the explanation at the very beginning of what the woman Cenobite looks like. And she's the only one that's described with that much detail, which I think is also interesting for a gay man to choose a woman to is the only one that he describes with that much detail. I think maybe I'm thinking of the one with the little eye, the little um, sunglasses, and he's overweight. He puts a little description into uh, Butterball, is what they call him. Okay, so I think that's the one I'm thinking of that almost made it feel a little bit more gimmicky to me. But maybe it's more of like the the time because there's, there's I didn't form main Cenobites, and I think that the art that they did on them kind of it's very like. If I had one wish, this is my only wish. I would love to see the Hellraisers made with modern like effects, like that to have be, what we have now to make them would look amazing. That In would particular, cool. I'd love to see Hellraiser two remade with modern effects because that would be a much better movie. But yeah, the 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 Cenobites that we see in this are the Chatterer, Butterball. I think she's just called the Woman. I don't know that they give her name other than that. And Pinhead. And I mean, Pinhead, he describes him in the book, and he's the one that everyone focuses on because he's. Douglas Bradley did such a great job of the role in the film. He's like I mean, oddly, became iconic, oddly sexy mm. to me. <laughs> like, what's what's wrong with me? Like, <laughs> but but when he describes Pinhead, I mean, it's such a simple description. Like, it, it doesn't require any more than that. Like, I think the the idea of like just the lattice work and the pins, and it's all it yeah, may, how it's all sectioned and yeah, very I. I really liked the introduction in the movie of that character. And I felt like that I was like, well, that's iconic. Like now I know why I see, you know, makeup artists on YouTube to this day decide that they're going to do pinhead tutorials for their. And nobody looks like Douglas Bradley. (laughs) Nobody. I've I've watched a number of people play that role and it just, he just something about him really makes that character. I was joking with bad. Pat, when you walked away earlier, by the way, about should I get my 18-inch model I have of Pinhead in this this room? Oh my goodness, I feel like you should have. <laughs> no, we're, we're good. He's on he's on the other side of the walls behind. Oh, me, okay, there you go. Eventually, I will get him into the studio. I'm pretty proud of him. We introduced the characters, okay. and we were getting to the point where at the beginning of the book, where I wanted to talk about because the most interesting thing to me is this idea with the gothic of things from the past coming back to haunt the future oh, yes. in a way. And this ancient secret of the Lamarche box is, was one thing. La Marchand. La Marchand. La Marchand? I studied German, not French. I don't think it's, Oh, I thought you were going to say it's German. I mean, every, so, every time Nick, I've ever heard it pronounced, it's the, it, it's the La Marchand's box. Well, Marchand. Nick would know. <laughs> Um, I, I, it may be wrong, but that's what, but that's how wait. we pronounce it. Oh, that makes no, absolutely. I didn't even. He was a French oh, toy maker, I believe. Was the idea? Okay. Well, so there's, I don't know. Just briefly, <laughs> Frank is searching all the pleasures of the world, and when he's on one of his debauched escapades, he runs into Kircher. this guy in Germany, Kircher. Kircher, and Kircher mm-hmm. mentions this. Le Marchand box. But he knows more than that, dude. You mean He's... the engineer? Oh. <gasps> what? <laughs> Is this a big reveal that I didn't no, think No, not really. If you, I mean, if you, if you, especially if you watch the movie and you pay attention, like. I feel you, like. It, it definitely, like, they lay it out pretty clear in that. I feel that... like I need, like, an organ for these, like. That, so, Kircher is the the engineer. That's what I, 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 there's a lot of speculation, I believe. Oh, okay, so, so he's like drawing people Let's in. put it this way. You don't find this unless you're supposed to find that's, it. That's, okay. yeah, that makes a Christy lot of sense. Christy kind of found it by accident. And they, that's why he makes, or the Cenobite in the hotel, the hotel room, the hospital room makes right. that statement of, you opened this by accident, didn't you? Like, this wasn't by design. And she's like, no. What yeah, like you, you don't find this box unless you're like trying you're to meant find it. To. Okay. Would so you kind of don't feel bad at any point for Frank, even if he was a good normal person, you'd still be yeah. like, well, you, you went looking for 
Helen, you found it. And well, it wasn't so, even that congrats. he just randomly found the box and was like tinkering it with a, like a Rubik's cube, which I kept thinking of it as like a gothic Rubik's cube when they were describing it, <laughs> even though it's like a gothic Rubik's it's cube. It's got like the mother of pearl inside and it's like glossed up. And it, anyway, it sounds beautiful, like visually, but um, you've never seen one. Well, I saw it in the movie, but I've never seen it anywhere. Well, you can actually you can actually buy puzzle boxes now. Like there's people that make really nice ones. I've seen them going for a couple hundred bucks, like Le Marchand boxes. I'm gonna You're drop just that. Gonna, as- yeah, well, well, that well, just for the just that. for the record, like if you've watched all the movies, like there's entire movies, like there's a movie uh, Bloodlines that gets into like actually the, the toy maker Le Marchand. You get to see. A bunch of people, like his family, through generations. And okay, now I'm gonna watch all the movies. Is there okay? I mean, what, are they really that bad? Which is, I'll have to. I will give you a. I'll give you a guide to which okay. ones are, 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 like, to expect certain things out of. So you have tempered expectations. Okay, okay. What's that movie that you like with the puppets that kill people? The puppet. I have the master. entire box set. <laughs> so I mean, I I think that you kind of have to. Even like Chucky to me was a bit like of a crappy movie. But did you watch the new one? The new one was good. I liked the new one with. I was real impressed with it yeah. actually. But the and maybe again it's like the time frame. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's well, hard with Chucky, to watch. I like the first two or three. Like when when it became when the movie stopped being child's play and became Chucky movies, I hate them. Yeah. Okay. Like I, I feel like the concept of a serial killer trapped inside a doll's body is both funny and compelling. Like, I the like, problem was is eventually like the character became so much big, like the hype became so much bigger. It's kind of like by the end of the Freddy Freddy series, like Freddy became too big for the stories to carry, and he was trying to up the ante too much. To, like that makes sense. I like the the child's play where he sneaks out onto the. Uh, this is off topic, but he sneaks onto the military camp and he's re- number three i think he replaces all the the paint guns with real bullets so they start really yeah. shooting each other during a drill never yeah. seen it. i didn't start watching horror movies yeah. until i was an adult so until I'm she behind. met me i'm very behind I'm way too into the stuff <laughs> but way so too young so just to give a plot summary, everyone like I we're kind of going on this show as if everyone has read the book or seen the movie as we're going through it. So I don't think like we need an exhaustive plot outline, but like just some kind of a structure to follow along with and guide the discussion is so he he goes on this journey like he finds the box because he, he opens the he goes back to his old his mother's house that's it's abandoned. The- the grandmother's house. Grand- I took it as not. I took it as this house has been shut up for a while. He goes there to open the box and to unlock it and get the most hedonistic pleasure that he can. Well, oh, the quick thing that I wanted to note was that he Frank does. Yeah, that Frank does all of the um, offerings. Oh, those were cool. So it, he not only goes to open the box, but he does all of the offerings that Kircher recommends to him. So it's like the heads of doves and flower petals, flower petals. And what was it? Honey or ginger or something. I can't remember. I think that those would have made absolutely no difference. And it was just Kircher appealing to this image that he had in his head. Cause like he built up some magic around this. And if he didn't have like the rituals, he would have never uh, he wouldn't have bought any I of it. Is the way so I always kind of took it. Maybe it's different for every person. Clearly, it didn't matter what Kirsty did. It. What was also interesting to me is that even in, in in the book, more than the movies, Frank really had to work to open it. Like it wasn't easy for him. Yeah. Like he, and I feel like it was just one more game that the box was playing with him, where Kirsty accidentally opened it and. It took almost no time at all for her to get in there. There was no pretense. It was just kind of, oh, hey. So it's like fancy for, meeting you here. Uh, so again, it's different for every person, which sort of yes. <laughs> kind of reminds me of, um, I'll come back to it. It'll come back to me. But okay. So where were you at? Okay. So he opens the box and the Cenobites come and they're like, dude, do you want pleasure like you never imagined? Are you sure? And he's like, yes. And they're like, are you sure? And he's like, yes. Are you really sure? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
And so then they take him and they're kind of like describing that it's like the sensuality of his nerve endings. And it, it seems like he turns into an omniscient person who feels all things that he can possibly feel at once and sees everything with as exquisite and minute detail. And it's so overwhelming to him, like in a to next me, level kind of dimensional to state. To me, it sounds like almost like he's he's going on some sort of like multidimensional hallucinogenic journey to me. Well, and, and if you remember... The it is the female who asks him, "Oh, you're done dreaming finally." When he's oh done. right, yeah, at, at the very end of chapter one. Yeah, so like that's the, the the first thing she says. So, oh, and then she dreaming. says, "Now we can begin." And yeah, like, and he's, oh. he's like completely wrecked. He's <laughs> like, "What? <laughs> we begin?" I need a nap. Oh, girl. but <laughs> but before he gets pulled into the world, he spills his seed on the floor. Right. And that is the one like thing he does that saves him. Isn't there blood? Isn't there his blood too? No, it's just the seed. And that's the thing that kind of tethers him. His finger hold on the, the in the real world. Okay. So then we come back to Rory and Julia. They move in. Kirsty shows up and they like have a moving in thing and they have a housewarming party. And it's awkward that Kirsty is there when Julia and Rory are unpacking. Well, there's this moment where he talks about the wedding bed and he kind of like nudge, nudge, wink, winks at her. And at Kirsty or Julia? Julia, but Kirsty's there. Oh, it's and, just awkward. And so she's like, <laughs> <laughs> My heart. My heart. And so, okay. <laughs> so then. This this next important part is there's a room upstairs that Julia is really attracted to. And it's just this empty room. The windows are boarded shut, like nailed shut. And it's just empty. It's devoid of anything. And it kind of has an odd air to it. But she's somehow drawn to it. And she goes back there all the time. Rory uh, nails his hand or chisels into his hand or something and qu- causes quite a large cut. And is bleeding all over the room um, that she's in, that upstairs room. And then what? Well, essentially, I mean, the, the the blood is what begins to, because he's related to Frank, they share some of the same blood. It's the idea. And it's the blood that kind of helps him start reconstituting himself and brings him back to this world. Um, it starts the process. How lucky is Frank? I was thinking about this, like, not only does he spill his seed on the floor and gets a finger hold into the world, but it just so happens that his brother cuts his hand. Well, I mean, I mean, they set that up in the beginning, like when they're saying, you know, Frank's the, the guy who's won lost fortunes. Like he's the guy who yeah. is kind of despite himself, like he just <laughs> highs and lows, yeah. like he has both of them, which it, it, it's it makes no mistake that that he would be the guy that would try and go to the limits of pleasure because he's just a guy who goes to the limits and everything mm-hmm. like as good as it can be as bad as it can be well you know the cenobites are about to take that up to about a million on both ends yeah absolutely and i feel like it's almost as if they are there's this so the there's a mention of him being a thief there's the mention of him gambling. There's the mention of him drinking too much. There's the mention of him and all of his sexual appetite. So it's almost like he's this, there's almost like an inkling of a moral fable almost through this whole thing that if you are the kind of person that's going to get involved in these things and take them to excess and be an addict, um, this kind of thing is going to befall you almost um maybe that's just sort of the way i took it as a religious but but he's the one that the woman lusts after so i mean yeah your life's gonna suck but you're gonna get laid so that's pretty (laughs) cool right (laughs) i mean because literally the 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 moral of the story is is this whole whole story is julia pining after this idea of this guy that she slept with once yeah like she's just she has this vision of like how her life could be perfect if she could just have that that adventurous man that's the exact opposite of the man that she ended up with. And like to it, me, it's funny to me, Julia is the is the centerpiece of this whole story. 
Right. Like you, you follow her when, when she has to start killing people to bring blood to reconstitute Frank. Like it, it follows her around. It, it, Kirsty doesn't become like the main character until like what the last, I don't know, last couple pages even. Julia like, and Kirsty are like foils of each other. They're, they're almost like the same character in the way that one is the, the positive side of somebody and one is like maybe the negative side of somebody but but not in the way that like you're always the happy bubbly person and you're always like the melancholy sad Mm -hmm. person or you're always good and you're always bad but it's it's more that i don't know i just felt like they were they were two halves of the same coin which sort of again reminds me of what i said in the castle of toronto when i was talking about matilda and isabella that they of course, they have their own personality traits and and they're different and they have so much the same, but they remind me of each other. It's almost like they're... You they're, feel like one can't just can't exist without the other. Yeah, absolutely. Like you need to have that balance. Did you want to explain quickly why Rory bleeding in that room and Julia needing to bring blood to that room? Just in case nobody knows what we're talking about. Well, for, first off, it really it shook me and kind of shocked me how easy it was for Julia just to be like, okay, I got to bring blood. (laughs) I mean, it didn't seem like it took much, maybe in the same way that it's easy for Frank to be tempted by hedonistic pleasure. Well, if, okay. So she was already drawn to that room. There was already something weird going on. And then after the blood was soaked into the floorboards, so she, you know, saw the blood there she goes to clean it up and it's gone. And Rory says, no, I didn't clean it up. And when she goes back, it's like, then she starts seeing the trippy stuff with the wall. Is that how the, it goes? Yeah, it's kind of like the gate opening. They they, they do, do the description. Honestly, that in the movie, that's my favorite part of the movie is kind of where the veil breaks and the, like the, the Cenobites world kind of floods into ours it's the the transition is awesome like we've got the birds and the the bells mm-hmm. and it's kind of like the walls open up and disappear it's it's just a cool it's cool conceptually and then like he's like one a place little, spilling into another like a little like part brain and like a little like vertebrae tail and he's just kind of frank comes <laughs> floating in around and he's like hey Hey, I need blood, well, and if you give me blood, I'm going to become what you want again. Like, I will reconstitute. Well, it's just so funny in the movie because he's like, Julia. Julia. It's Frank. Frank. <laughs> the Frank. Brother Frank. You know, we did each other that one time. <laughs> it's so much nicer Look looking in jelly. the movie than it is in the book. In the book, it sounds... It, it just sounds like loveless and harsh and, you know, their copulation. Like, it's just, bleh. it doesn't, but she somehow, I think that it's, she's, I mean, she's already decided to go down a level to find Rory and to be with him and to marry him. And it's, so she is willing and shows us that she will even degrade herself further by, going down to having sex with Frank. Who's oh, really? That's the way you take that? Like this alcoholic criminal. I don't know. Maybe not degrade oh, so, herself. So but... here's the thing. Frank is in absolute control of his life. Like while mm. Frank's life may look crappy to us, at no point is Frank's life not what he desires. Frank gets everything he needs. He like the reason he lives in squalor is because he doesn't care about it. All he cares about is that next high, that next thing that he can go after. And he will go to, he will go all the way to death and back if he has to, to get what he is after. And for one day, Julia was something he was after. He saw her, he wanted her, he took her. Hmm. Like he was, she was okay. desired by something that like she, she sees him as something profound. Just, just an, an animal that is going to get what nourishes it. Doesn't matter what that is. Rory, the thing that she doesn't like about Rory is that he's he's dopey. He, yeah. Okay. He's he doesn't have that animal part of him. He's not going to chase down anything. And Frank is just 
the embodiment of machismo. Like, yeah, he's he's an archetype in and of himself. And I think that's that's the key is that she's not she's not trying to degrade herself because she sees him as something far superior to his brother, because like at least he's knows what he is. And I think the degrade was possibly, yeah, no, absolutely, like the wrong word. I, but it's more that I mean, he looks like garbage to us, clearly. <laughs> but I, I feel like it's, I feel like it's more that she does it cheapen her in a way. No, I just can't. I can't think of the right word. It's you know who she, we should call Clyde Barker. You know the right <laughs> word. I tweeted at him when I was. <laughs> I just I You're suppose like, hey, dude. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about your book. You I, want to come I, talk about I your book? I put a picture on Instagram of our lining kugels, bottles, and uh, that bat's heart vial that we had. Mm-hmm. I, and, I don't think he. I don't think he does many interviews anymore. I believe he had throat cancer or something. Oh no! And so like, he doesn't talk. Last I last time interview I saw him, he did wasn't talking great. You mean he's not perennially? Well, Twenty years uh, old and living I, well, in the eighties. Did you feel that way? Like I, I <laughs> he's. I mean, he's. Well, God, but he's push probably pushing, probably pushing. He's at least probably pushing sixties now. I want to know. Yeah, let's <laughs> find know out. Now. Let's find out. Well, so um, Julia goes up, and Frank has reconstituted himself in a certain way, and to a certain extent, and she goes on the quest to go get blood for him. Do we have any thoughts about her, you know, her e the ease at which she decides to go and commit the ultimate sin to try and bring Frank back for this one last hurrah? No. Or to it, run away together? It wasn't even like a speck of surprise that she Here, Let me break in. Clyde Barker <laughs> is 68, by the way. Oh, jeez. Oh my goodness. So yeah. He was born in 1952. I think it was. Yeah. Wow. He's probably like, hey, I'm retired people, and I'm going to chill. Is he like one of those people that, um, the older people that on social media and everywhere, they just reuse pictures of themselves when they were a lot younger? Because I find that disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever noticed how some people do that? Yeah, absolutely. They'll take a picture of their old black and white picture of themselves back when they were 30. It's like, you remember that I did That's going to be me. We all remember. That's another... So, okay. Member. Any member. One other thing I did kind of forget to mention, and why, like, it, it pertains to the, the transition and why Julie does kind of buy into it. There are certain things that Frank is just amazing at. One of those things is reading people. Like, he, he, to him, it is plainly obvious why she keeps coming into that room. And that room is special to her because that is the room where they did what they did. And, oh, it is, isn't it? I guess I didn't so make there's that a, connection. And so there's a wistful, like he's seeing this as like a wistful remembrance. And so he kind of uses that to, hey, I can, you know, we can do that again. Just you got to help make me, you got to bring me back from where I am and make me who I you remember. Yeah, she's you know, a he, means he to manipulates an end. that heart. And and she's just, and and that's what I find so. I think that's one of the elements that I find so interesting about her character is she does seem strong and like in her wants and sort of immovable in stoic again is the word that I just keep dropping on. But then this guy has this power over her and he's just, I look at it like the same way. Like you, you have like those CEOs that get into the Dom thing she's someone who is in control and she is someone who, you know, is all poise. And, and here is an animal that is superior to her and can make, like he can take of her what he wants. And that is something great, something that can just reduce her. That's kind of how I saw it. It's just this thing that she can't find anywhere else because she's someone who is used to controlling everything around her. And this is something that she can't control. And because of that, she wants it. Absolutely. I 100% agree. People have weird sexual fantasies. It's what yeah, are the and, do. and I think that's the base of it, too, is like she keeps or at least in the story, it keeps being brought up that she loves him. She's in love with him. She loves Frank. She wants to be with Frank. She's in love with Frank. She's not in love with Rory. And Rory says he loves her and he's done all of this for her. And what's wrong with him? Um, and he, uh, you know, comes at her that one night during the storm and 
and says, you know, what have I done wrong to you? Like, what have I done that you don't love me? And I don't think she loves anyone. I don't think she loves anything. I think it's all sexual. I think it's just, I think it's 100% sexual, like you were saying. Like, it's, she has control. She's probably, I mean, if we're to make assumptions about her character, um, and we're looking at the setting and class, she's probably been someone that has found the way to, you know, get what she wants always, um, hasn't had a hard time getting what she wants. And then, you know, as you were saying, like, he's... So you know, she's Frank. more like Frank than you think, huh? Yeah. I guess you're right. I guess maybe they're two birds of a feather in more ways now that we're... Like, they've lived their lives very differently, but at the end of it, they're both people chasing down what they want. And so I don't think she loves him, though. I don't think it's love. But he doesn't love her matters. either. Yeah. I think it's just... I think she... I think they're, again, like two halves of the same thing because he's chasing after pleasure and sensuality and lust and she is too she wants that again what she had with frank well i think at this point frank's just trying to get the hell away from the centibites <laughs> <laughs> which you know bad news for him because the the end of the story is once he's back essentially he it's not quite working like he doesn't have a skin so like he doesn't quite blend in you'd imagine <laughs> And so his his final thing is he decides to take Rory's skin. That is so, like to me that part I was Slugged, like, bro, Whoa! I love that. Like he, like that is such like to me that's such a Frankenstein kind of moment. Like this grotesque, like he's deciding to take his own brother, someone who looks like him but not is not him. Mm -hmm. um, and be within his skin. And then the part where Kirsty comes into the house, she's, she has figured out the puzzle box. She has met with the Cenobite and she's made the deal that she will bring them Frank, that she knows Frank is alive and he has, you know, sucked up all the blood and nutrients. He needs to become whole again, at least partially whole and that he is going that she's going to give the Cenobites Frank Cotton back and so she goes back to the house and uh, like that whole scene of her walking in to the room with the dinner table and seeing Rory there but it's Rory but it's not that yeah. scene is just it's the uncanny chef's kiss that's my that's my favorite part of the book novella short story <laughs> <laughs> and so I, what i'm also finding really interesting is we haven't talked hardly at all about the fact that number one these are the priests of the gash so this is some type of religious order the cenobites and the religious connotations of they can't take frank like they the deal is nothing until frank confesses his sins oh I like, didn't even think about it. I that didn't catch way. that part. There's so much monastic stuff about like what they are. Like it's they're like I I, I love the fact that the the the, the Cenobites is as a thing. Like while their body because they, they show them as being almost unaffected by how disfigured they are. Like these are beings that have just you get the idea of seeing, literally seen everything. There's nothing that can like shock them. Nothing that can affect them. Like, so when they're seeking pleasure or pain or whatever, they're going to choose to follow. Like there's just nothing left. They are the true end of what Frank would become. Like mm -hmm. the being that has just followed that path all the way to the end. And I find it interesting that like, there's like a stoic quality to all of them. Mm hmm. Like they've moved beyond pain and pleasure having any effect on them. Like they off like even in Frank's case, they offered him chances after chances to say, No, nah, this isn't what I'm after. And he willingly chose, No, no, I'm I'm game. And it's like saying, Look, you can be one of us eventually, but you know, and, look upon what yeah. your future is. And and bound by the same you know, their same agreements and their laws with 
when Kirsty opens the box accidentally. And it's like, well, we get it was an accident, but we got to take some. We, gotta we take have somebody. our rules. Like you have to come and, um, you know, and then when they make that covenant, which is, you know, a very religious uh, connotation to that promise, I guess, that she makes to him or that deal, which, again, is almost like gambling, which kind of brings me back to thinking about all of these like addictive qualities that they uh, have fr- that, you know, Frank is. I never picked up on that on what about the, the church aspects. bells that Julia hears? Yeah. God damn it, the, all these people go to church. But they're not really church bells. Those are the bells of Frank. Mm-hmm. And, the, and that veil being. Right. Kind of, and the veil. Yes. So like, once again, you're, these religious beings, the bells, like there's a, there's a lot of religious iconography that goes into the, this particular story that I always found fascinating. I just, you know, because it's almost like so that idea of, of, you know, heaven kind of turned on itself right like it's a inverse of of like the whole idea of it i mean if you were to flip it around it would be such a like a story like a like it was such a beautiful story almost i keep thinking back to as i was first reading so I, i read a chapter and a half and was like well this is just like a flat horror story i was kind of like, oh, great. It's going to be this, like, really violent, erotic story. And it is all of that. And yeah, it is. I was going to say. <laughs> it is. But, like, it's it has depth. Like, this story has depth. I love his writing style. I love his word choice, his prose. I did and really enjoy. I, I found myself rereading sections. And I think one of the... One of the things I kept being impressed with was that it is gothic horror. It is, you know, it has all of these elements that we've discussed in these episodes. And it it almost brought more of a respect to it to me. Because, you know, at first I feel like just on the general outset, I took the sensuality not even the sensuality of it, because I feel like that word has the connection of being romantic. Did it feel pornographic for you? Is that why you were kind of... Maybe, but it was it was dirty. Like, I felt like, it, you know, like the violence and the horrors and the... Like, it was it was supposed to be dirty, and I wasn't really originally in, like, the first chapter and a half wasn't really looking at it as well, much let's just of... say this is not the signal man <laughs> <laughs> this is a very very different approach well, to that it's, yeah, but it's, it's funny but it is it's gothic horror and it has it absolutely is and it's he's a wonder like this is wonderfully but written another reason why it fits in that vein though is because gothic horror traditionally has been looked down upon from you know from its inception it was looked down upon as smut it was trashy you know. Well, some of it was. And I think the romance aspect is here, too. There's so many different aspects of romance within this. Kind of in a Romeo and Juliet kind of way. Kirstie, I think, is in love with Rory. Rory's in love with Julia. Julia's in love with Frank. Frank is in love with Frank. Himself. <laughs> yeah. If Frank is just... I, I, that's the thing. I don't think of Frank as having any other thought other than just what's the next thing. What's yeah. the next high? What's I get the, the impression thing? that he'll get like if if he did get out, he's number one. He's going to kill Julia at some point, probably pretty quickly, and he's going to leave her there, and he's going to go and find what's the next Lamarchand box that didn't work out to my liking necessarily. Let's go find the next thing. Well, Liz, you made the comment that it's it's like a romance, but at the same time. Yeah, I think it's it's like a surface level romance, and that's why I said it's like Romeo and Juliet because Romeo and Juliet aren't in love; they're infatuated with each other. Oh, but absolutely! I I feel like maybe out of everyone in this whole thing, maybe Kirsty was really in love with Rory. Maybe. I think if if we were to choose anybody as being truly in love, I think she. Saw him for his faults, probably, and she still liked, not liked, but loved him. Does that take away from the movie version, then, when she's just his daughter? No, because in the movie version, she's his daughter and she really loves him. 
it's a pure love is the idea behind it. I mean, she loves her dad. And that's the other part is in the movie, there's this scene where... He's too doofy in the movie. <laughs> where uh, Rory, as the father, has been tricked into coming upstairs to the room where Frank is. And doesn't Kirsty come before it's actually happened? He's actually before he's actually dead. Well, that's how she gets in the hospital in the first place. Yeah, she throws the box out the window, right? Because in the book, she comes and Ror- and Rory's already dead. Like he's been skinned, he's dead, he's gone. That's after she comes back from the hospital, right? No, it's before. She, I she, think she she just sees a body there. She just she oh. she sees the body because she figures out when they're downstairs that. The person that she's seeing isn't Rory. Yeah. She's like, this isn't like it's his it's him. But he says, come to daddy, which I was like. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If we're going to talk about bondage, Rob Alford, like (laughs) Judas Priest, come to daddy is exactly. I'm like, that's that. That's that right there. (laughs) You know, I just had this thought. um, What if we're reviewing those of you, you're not watching the video version, but what if I'm rewatching the video version and we see like eyes behind us here in this? Steph, that's a different movie, actually. That's Candyman. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Which we'll have, we might have to do that one. We used to have cats, so, um, I always expect to see them, um, the, uh, behind us. Which, by the way, the, the short story for Candyman is actually unbelievable, too. Well, there we that's go. That's what that's one of my favorite. We're setting up I your think... next guest appearance. <laughs> I think What if I there's not gothic re- elements? I think in you're going to be a repeat guest. Yeah. <laughs> well, well that well, I mean that one's got a lot of really that one gets into What I if you were to read a lot of Clyde Barker's eventually he's really fascinated with really interesting old eras in American history. Like he gets really into like American southern culture in some of his books. <laughs> We're going to, we might have to do that short story with, you were telling me about the story he has where there's these huge giant like mech monsters that are made from humans. Uh, In the, was it in the hills, the, in the hills, the cities, I think it's called. I think it's in Books of Blood 1. It's definitely in the Books of Blood. I I mean, I've got the, the, them all around here somewhere. Well, I think there's actually a comic book version of that too. That's pretty cool. So they're making a, a, TV show. I didn't mention that he's a comic book guy. Like, <laughs> I've got a bunch of like he's, he had a comic book called Age of Desire, which is like a dude who like is all about orgasms. Like, <laughs> what's good? I'm a dude, it's and not... I'm just all about orgasms. So it's Frank. It's basically just. <laughs> if you're gonna, I feel like if you imagine Frank as like a anti-hero, mm. <laughs> he writes some really interesting stuff. We'll just say that. Do we have final thoughts? Well, I was going to say really quickly that, you know, I was thinking about maybe kind of talking about some American Southern Gothic writing eventually, like maybe some Mark Twain stuff. So I think that this could. When you you read that Mark Twain, I want you to read the book Galilee after it. (laughs) So this is this is what I'm talking about. I think we've got so much that we can cover. Like, yeah. I'm just really excited for all of the stuff that that's out there. And I mean, now that I've seen this movie and read this book, it's just totally turned it on its head. Like I was expecting, um, you know, we're going to have to like really try to find like modern Gothic horror. I was like, we're going to really have to work at it. Nope, I told you. And, I told um, you. and, you know, just, I'm really happy that I was sort of, um, brought into this mindset of, of no, like try something new. And I really enjoyed it. Again, I think Clive Barker has skill. Like, I feel like he's a great writer. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it a lot. And well, I'm case excited. In point, for, I told Patrick, this is not even near my favorite work. Is I kind of like, it's, it's, it's good for what it is, but it's, 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 it's kind of like just a taste of something that he does in a lot more grandiose fashion hmm. than this. Like my favorite stuff, and he has never finished it, but he started what's called the books of the art. And they're just these epic, epic tales that take place that like, we're, we're, you know, about magical worlds. It's like almost Tolkien-esque and like has a, his approach and scale of what he's doing, but it all has like th- that kind of 
the underpinnings of the what you got in this kind of we woven through that. I'm just I'm really I'm so excited. <laughs> like I just can't mm-hmm. finding a new author and especially within my favorite genre. I, well, I mean, mysteries is so and, hard to find good, good. People. Yeah, mm-hmm. it really is, especially that write well, because I think it's not hard to just in the same way that you can create easy jump scares. Yeah, it's easy to write cheap, quick, scary horror. And I I love finding someone and reading things that are actually like get under your skin. Well, the, the, uh, to me, the key to horror, if to do it right, is that it's going to make you look inside. Like you're mm-hmm. going to, like, why was H.P. Lovecraft as good as H.P. Lovecraft was? Because H.P. Lovecraft make you sit there and question yourself at every turn, going, "Huh, how do I feel about this? Why do I feel that way? Do I understand this? Do I know me? Is there something inside me? Like, it, it's all the questions. I guess it." For me, horror is just philosophy. It's just one way of looking at it. And unless you're like getting into how it makes you feel inside, like there's there's nothing more scary to me personally than what's going on in my own head, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so when you spend a lot of time making people question the monster that could be lurking in them, that's that's so powerful Mm -hmm. or the monster that could be in your neighbor, just. Amen. I love that. That's good. (laughs) Golf clap. <laughs> All right. Well, Not loud clap because fi- we're podcasters. <laughs> fi- final summary and review is that, I mean, that's a great final note to end on. Oh, absolutely. Unless we have anything else to I think to we're pick good. Apart. I don't All have right. anything else to sorry, say. Sorry I ran so long. I talk a lot. <laughs> oh, no, no. no. The, it's, not, it's not at all. We're so we're happy just... that you could be here and talk with us about this. Yeah. Because... There's nothing more fun, I think, than talking about a cool work with someone who's a really big fan of the author and the Mm -hmm. work. So I felt like it was perfect. Yeah, well, that's why I knew we had to get you on, Nick. (laughs) Well, I mean, that and you didn't want to talk quite as much. It's nice when someone else gets to to carry that load. I've been podcasting. I I do interview shows myself. I've been podcasting a lot this week. We'll just say that. Every I'm, night. I'm always happy, happy when I get those <laughs> those 18 minute. You know, you're laying in bed episodes. They're always fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's every night. I'm like, you coming to bed? Well, no, Lizzie. I'm podcasting again. I've got something to complain <laughs> about here for a couple minutes. I'm so, like, all right, good night. <laughs> here's my Anchor.fm plug. So. <laughs> no, no, no. But, uh, no. Yeah. Well, Nick, why don't you remind the audience again what you do and where they can find your work? Uh, honestly, if you if you're interested, and just head on over to nickbacone.com. You can see anything that I do. Uh, in particular, I, I'd love to have people listening to Peace Freaks, where it's me and my wife Lizzie talking about our relationship and our our life, homesteading and homeschooling, and just kind of trying to make our life as good and positive as we can with you know the crazy world that we're in. Yeah, that's definitely needed right now. And while the links to that will be in our show notes page at unhallowedpodcast.com forward slash five, because you can always find the show notes at unhallowedpodcast.com forward slash the episode number. But Pecone is P-E-C-O-N-E, right? Yep. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I know this won't be the last time that we have you on to talk either Clive Barker or there's a whole treasure trove of other stuff, isn't there? I've I've been into this a while. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. Well, thanks again. And uh, we'll look forward to having you on next time. Good night.